You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Good evening, everybody. Uh, you're all very welcome. My name's Eve Patton. I'm director of the Trinity Longroom Hub, which is this building. And this is, for those of you who haven't been with us before, this is our research institute for the arts and humanities. Uh, and one of uh, the very welcome um, elements within the arts and humanities is our new Centre for Resistance Studies, which was set up a couple of years ago by uh, some of my very enterprising colleagues who join us tonight. Uh, and one of the first things the Centre for Resistance Studies did was to set up, not really a lecture series, because there are lectures of various kinds, readings, screenings, and so on, but to set up a series that looked at the subject of literature and resistance. Uh, and I'm absolutely thrilled that this evening we come at last to the topic of poetry and resistance. Uh, I don't think I have to tell anybody in this audience that, of course, all poetry is resistance poetry of a kind. But there are occasions, time periods, uh, political situations, and individuals who I suppose bring a particular kind of focus to the topic of resistance in their writing. Uh, and what a pleasure it is this evening to be joined by Needy and Anthony, who are going to speak to this subject. Um, and uh, let me, before I hand over to our chair, um, thank again Poetry Ireland for um, partnering with us on this event. It's just great, as always, to have you with us. Um, so on that note, I'm going to hand over to my colleague and himself, a very esteemed poet, uh, winner recently of the Rooney Prize for Literature, among many other awards for his uh, beautiful memoir, All Down Darkness Wide, uh, Sean Hewitt. Hello, everyone. Um, I have the easy and um, very fun job of just sitting back and, and introducing our speakers tonight. Um, we have Nidhi Zak and Anthony Anaxaguru. Um, the evening will take place uh, in two 20-minute readings, so uh, we'll have Anthony first and then Nidhi. Then we'll have a little chat and uh, hopefully open out to questions, so uh, if you do think of any questions uh, during the reading, hold on to them, because uh, there will be time to, to ask our poets. Um, I don't think I need to introduce these poets, um, but perhaps I can refresh uh, your memories. Um, Nidhi Zak's debut collection, uh, which I have here, uh, Auguries of a Minor God, came out with Faber in 2021. And it was shortlisted for the Dylan Thomas Prize, uh, the John Pollard Prize, and the Butler Literary Award. I was just here asking Niddy if she definitely still did all of the things that I had written down on her bio, um, because it seems like an unfathomable amount of responsibility that she has. Uh, and indeed, she does still do it all. Uh, she is the founder of the Play It Forward Fellowships for Underrepresented Writers, uh, which are already making their mark and shifting the Irish literary landscape. Uh, Nidhi is also poetry editor of Skeen Press and a contributing editor to The Stinging Fly. Her voice in these poems uh, can be both ferocious and vulnerable, playful and heartfelt. These are poems that are made of a love that wounds and a love that also allows for hope. They are formally experimental and enter the reader into a sort of intellectual dance. 
The poems in Auguries of a Minor God, uh, from which we'll hear tonight, move from the tight lyric uh, delicacies in the opening um, part of the book to a propulsive and uh, dazzling long poem, A is for Arab. All the way through, they resist single ways of being read, and that is apparent both on the page and in listening to Nidhi read. Anthony's uh, book, um, Heritage Aesthetics, is his third collection. Um, he's a similarly expansive poet who, like Nidhi, engages the reader, and I think makes us active participants in the process of the poem. His second collection, After the Formalities, was shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize and the Legbury Prize. And he's also the founder, uh, recently, of Propel magazine, uh, which features the works of poets who are yet to publish their first collection. Not only this, uh, we have two very enterprising poets here. Uh, not only this, but Anthony is artistic director of one of the UK's premier literary events, uh, Outspoken, which has its home at the Southbank Centre in London. And he's also the publisher at Outspoken Press. Anthony's most recent collection, uh, this gorgeous volume, Heritage Aesthetics, um, was just released last week. Uh, and there are copies of all of the books um, upstairs uh, afterwards. Anthony, as the poet and author Kit Fan writes, uh, taps into the discordant music of our times. And I think we feel that discord as attention and also as a challenge in these poems. Uh, they move across memory, nation, history, and race with a sort of sense of plurality, irresolution, critique, and importantly, possibility. So I'm going to introduce uh, Anthony to the stage now. Uh, and he'll read for about 20 minutes. Uh, and then maybe you will follow. <laughs> I started life as dead currency. In the first week of spring, a male voice on the radio said children develop a taste for praise by frightening off birds. As an adult, I've been attending to myself in my finest forced leather, rocking the old days like a proto-meme, a subdued pleat, a Neolithic aphorism. I finished this bestseller in one day, ways we should all be breathing. It proposed I forgive my past for its stubbornness, or so I'll sneak the leading probiotics into the tabernacle while six hooded men edit the bio of Christ. My skull needs lathering before it bribes the priest's sniper scope, which started off as liquid sand, relying solely on the glass blower's breath. These days I'm all epigenetics and indignation, minarets and anairic miracles. I'm bending over backwards to kiss my trauma's forehead, all furrowed, as if it were my only son dreaming of being believed by the tea in a gaiwan. The job of any parent is to prepare their children for a world without them. Fear is the only conclusive list. I remember the body mass index of each Byzantine saint. The mosque across the road looks so peaceful, so photogenic, a public address blunders into barrier tape. Since then, I've made it a habit to check the ingredients of my opening gambits, weaponizing certainty, the glittered spool of a life wound. What I wouldn't give to turn silent today, 
to lead the front line of language towards the cliff, dropping my sad mornings beside some gentle accident. It's my friends I'm thinking of, dead inside their faultless bodies, offering up ground. I'll donate a modicum of hard cash to the approaching circus, two fatigued elephants carting heirlooms, rebranding this new age vacuum-packed consciousness. I wish I could play an instrument on days like today, a stoned pianist with poor posture, forfeiting moral hands for the freedom of a chord. I swear to be part of anything that sees me. I can't stress this enough. A famous past stole our homes. My family survived empire, a violence to my father's head. I was only a boy then, with squeaky clean shoes, his pants all sullied. Now I'm paying institutions to read up on what was originally mine. Ripping body parts off eugenicists, bigots preserved in specimen jars, England. I've spent so long inside your history, it's like there will never be another way round this black torch. Held between your fangs, clapping at the end of an American movie. How do we stop? Let love move us naturally. Dodge another set knee the weight of our dead. One last plea. What I wouldn't give to turn silent today. Before statistics catch a siren, turn into a baton. Swinging meat, slave roads shimmying under brute force. The second coming, down above his temple. Her pelvis, cracking law into order. Forced to beg a badge, says what it wants. My friends, lost to daylight appearances. A platoon of cameras, my country, your country. Rolling like jackals, thick with a sickness for blood. Blonde, blue, white. The silver suggests the death of God gave birth to four white men. Appiah has it as the Battle of Tours. I'm rereading ranking. 75.8% of Puerto Ricans self-identify as white. At lunch, I share the quote with P, who removes his Zanaburka cap. Suppose, I say, referencing Linda Alcoff, selves are constituted in relationship to communities that have been racially constructed. What then happens when there are multiple conflicting communities through which a self is constituted? We split the bill, check to see if it's raining before becoming more East London. So who are the four white men? Sussman has it as Grant, Davenport, Osborne and Laughlin. Each attempted to monopolise anthropology in the early 20th century. But can racism and its apparatus be accurately documented? Ugar, Kashmir, Palestine, Yemen, Rohingya, Armenia, Sudan, Sami, history is here, happening to us. Are we not all predisposed to at least some degree of tribalism? Discuss. As in, whose life matters more, your mother's or the stranger's toppled by a sparrow? I've read about historical persecution of the Chinese. I've written a paper on East Timor, that Darwin quote, or was it Baldwin? Probably Baldwin. I think all theories are suspect. What's America Britain's greatest fear? On the green, A asks why I even care. After all, she says, I could pass if I wanted. At the end of Ronald Storr's orientations, he observes the Cypriot, noting, I understand a white and a black gentleman, but these in-betweens I do not want to understand. 
I cite the opening of Sharif Shahan's poem, Asma. I get tired of carrying the beating my grandfather inherited, the Great Britain my father inherited, my mother inherited, my brother inherited, my sister working against my father's inheritance, my father, his father's mother gets tired of carrying, I pull at the grass. Witness a cloud, vomit a pair of ostrich feathers, recall a line from the critic who reviewed my last book, Violence and its Children. Maggie Nelson's The Art of Cruelty examines the work of performance artist Neo Batamaste, who said, I really encourage you to leave your body. I'm having a conversation with R regarding the way a body is rendered through a public imagining. Who gets to speak on behalf of the body, etc., and carry it all the way home? Who decides which body can leave, which body can stay? How will a body become seen or heavy enough to sleep, marvellous enough to fuck, understanding itself in the life of itself? Whose body gets to pirouette? Whose body makes a perfect target? Whose body is kept awake by the body politic? I'm alive in Great Britain. I'm alive. So who's that lying next to me? Around the wooden table, there's some talk. I don't know about the you or the me they keep referring to, but my country is split between this and that, composed of distances and border bills. Okay, I take pleasure in exploiting my emergencies. Imagine this amount of knowing, and still a child grows into a question. In Paul Bloom's Against Empathy, he writes, Empathy is limited in that it focuses on specific individuals. Its spotlight nature renders it enumerate and myopic. I'm back around the wooden table for the last time where we make our requests. So far each week the menu has been different. My son asked why we shoot to kill the only species that fly. Is that why they invented gods and superheroes? Sweet kid. If you're serious, take off the falconry glove to feel how the raptor really has it. Evenings shoulder into the jasmine, fouler than a fatted cock. Each peony born to its station grows towards similar heights. We write so well for our kind, License the lexicon of power like the narcissism of a bullet. Stand by for a pylon in snow. History's digital cachet dilates. News gets crowned our century's insomniac. You're struggling to backpedal, spinning around the flush. I'll come clean. I can't stomach these tiny screens. Ten minute videos, someone's about to get cancelled, you know where this is heading. Some never get to come back as I'm sorry. How do you look so authentic in reproach? Breath rich in haemoglobin, your smirk thick with lipids. You know some lives won't make it the full way. Again, bodies will be snuffed at a red light. At the bottom of your rhetoric, semantics crawl. I want to vandalise speech. Repurpose each syllable with a fair way of shaping. You sit, sharing a ready-made war, bickering over its origin. You and I know the world is the last time for some of us who want life slowed. Each hashtag comes with a perfect set of holes, a cell. No matter the protest our actions become, we'll be hauling our slang around like a state 
calling back its dogs. We brand wounds to sell them on. No matter the language we arrive in, no matter how long it's been since. Last night they broke into the confidence shop, leaving nothing but mirrors. The whole time I was awake trying to fix my router. Today I'm sipping Americanos with six new interns, pontificating on the stoicism on lifeguards who grew up in rural England with all the prospects of a stationary outlet. In a few hours, a man will walk down the street in Birmingham to drive a knife into a person he's never heard lie. Violence only teaches us how to keep returning to it. In real life, we share a third of our DNA with mushrooms. Some facts need to be written down before they're believed. My landlord spends his holidays on a Cumbrian field with his wife, who coincidentally happens to be my brother's landlord. There, they hold each other inside a small blue tent after weeks of heavy rain. I imagine them laying over some part of a hundred million insects, which constitute the majority of the world's biomass. How their gorgeous, slow lovemaking might sound to a swarm of abstaining termites. A single ant roving the near underworld with nothing but a crumb of honest soil. I think about the cost of living and how for now we're alive enough to fuck on top of the earth. Our bodies fecund with unripe disease. In 40 years, my son will be updating his CV for a job that doesn't exist yet. I'll be sat like a bookmark at the kitchen table, stirring tea in an easy way, thinking about my mother and father and the day's water was water. A soft-voiced lady with perfect posture will project onto the wall of my living room via a device fixed to the roof, hoping to sell me a brighter version of myself, saying something like, We'll keep the future in your sights. I'll decline, returning to the sofa where I'll remember the greengrocer, the joys of his old Instagram account full of organic kale and deals on kombucha. Then before I do anything else, I'll think, the penis really does not age well. And I'll do one last one. How's everyone doing, all right? All right? Um, Thought I killed everyone. <laughs> um, this is a Sistina. The chance to be part of this happens briefly. My son grows to edge where the ocean slips, roughly pointing towards a float. He asks me to rescue it from a future he can't see. Three slow steps in until I'm governed by cold moving towards an unknown confluence. I'll say how I panicked, unmoored by my weight. They say the closer you get to time, the further it moves. For a brief second, I believed I could make a difference. Another cold thought splits my side, salt clings, feels rough around my limits, each wave dumping sweat. I see my son's worry in the surge, hear his asking rumble through the earth's bladder. I wanna ask for more time, how can a body reverse in water? I say aloud, I don't think I'll make it, seeing his profile plunge like a conch. As a boy, I took a brief diving course where I learnt how oxygen turns starfish rough, drying them into land until a child discovers the cold of them, chucking what's left into a bucket, 
Over time, our colder selves arrive to find us struggling against the drift, asking for a cup of moonlight to sunny the medals from our rougher years. Say I persevered, not wanting him to see me fail, even if for a brief second he lost sight of me or believed I drowned at sea. I'll stay repurposing my strongest lines, see the floats reaching for my hand, the gap becoming less cold, reminding me the ocean is alive inside the world. It's brief to keep the retina saline, to not need a question, asking for little in return. The sea, it refuses to say why it keeps down the mast head, the ghost roughly the size of my son's waiting. I turn towards him roughly where I left, what's keeping me afloat? My work sees him dressing up for a life, rehearsing what I'll finally say, hill walking out the ocean, his float in hand, juddering from cold, I did it for you, I'll declare. If he ever asks where I was the whole time, then I'll keep my explanation brief, roughly the way my father did during those colder years when I begged his hand to turn me calm. I'm looking across the foreshore, I can't see him anywhere. I had this to give, to say briefly. I'm a chief. Taught me how to kiss. My small face in her hands. Cheek blade wetting mine. Breathing in shy, lung filled, as if she had just been born, and I, so close, enough to smell, giddy heat, oiled ringlets, like coconut, like matriarch, tough, round, outside, tender, white, inside, so. Later, when he put his tongue down my throat, I gave it back. Because a man who doesn't know how to kiss you doesn't deserve to touch your hair. I think it was Ernesto. Che Guevara, who wrote, um, at the risk of seeming ridiculous, let me say that the true revolutionary is guided by a great feeling of love. It is impossible to think of a genuine revolutionary lacking this quality. So all the poems I'm going to read tonight are about love in various forms. They're also about language, because language for me, is one of the primary modes of resistance and expressing resistance, especially in poetry. So I'm going to read a few poems that sort of draw on different languages. And the first one is uh, informed by my ill-fated decision when I was young to study French and immersive language course in Paris. It's called Say Poésie, which means it's poetry. Dublin Airport, arrivals. I wait for the person who does not come. 
Each time the side-wide jaws of frosted glass glide open. Standing by a generic cafe chain where sparrows make a home. Flitting low from the place where earlier rafters would have been. Man coming through with a boy, I assume, is his son, tired, both of them wanting to be elsewhere, breathing different air. But when he sees a bird, his eyes fill with wonder. The oiseau, he points out to the child. Oiseau, but this boy cannot see bird cannot see life hopping across hard tiles, hiding among the cheap legs of chairs manufactured in China. Man hunched now on haunches, eyes level with the boy's bride, pointing with extended finger, and in this moment I am back in Paris, giving my French viva at La Sorbonne, with Mademoiselle William's bejeweled hands pointing to a page in a picture book, a scene of domestic contentment a mother in the kitchen, a sous chef daughter, a father with his feet up in front of the telly, and two boys playing with remote-controlled cars in the hall. <coughs> she taps one manicured fingernail on the girl's hair. Regardez-vous. Her grey-eyed gaze prods me for the word. Where's I say, then again, willing the word to mean the thing that she wants me to name. But it isn't. It's Shevel. And I will continue to confuse these two long after I've left France. And I'm no longer forced to prove that I know what I'm talking about. Or fudge my way through the intricacies of a foreign tongue when I'll be able to buy things that cost more than 30 euros, because I won't feel ashamed of not knowing higher numbers. And when passers-by ask for the time, I will be able to tell them down to the minute, not rounded off to the hour or half. But right now she is waiting, impatiently, for me to get it right. And I don't. So I point out the things I do know in you. La fourchette, les oeufs, la poubelle, and wonder I'd be white French gave Dustin such a pretty sounding name. She snaps the book shut, says bien. Ask me for the final part to make sentences out of certain verbs. First, aimer to love. J'aime, I tell her. She waits. I sit there, and we wait. She makes a forward motion with her hand. I say, c'est tout. She shakes her coiffed head, no. Aime quelque chose, ou aime quelqu'un, bien sûr, mais j'aime seulement n'existe pas. Ce n'est pas possible, earrings shaking. C'est la même chose en anglais. She finishes, defiant, but it isn't, because in English I can say I love.
because love can stand on its own. What else is there? Hola, c'est poésie, she laughs, batting the flowers right away. Inquisitive bird hovering around her fingers fringed with emeralds. This poem is called Ama de Casa. <coughs> the year my family moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico crowned the Biscochito the official state cookie. Dula Maria, our new nanny, took it upon herself to show us how to bake the aromatic cinnamon anise sensation. Dula spoke English in an accent so luxurious it made you want to roll in it, like a dog in fresh moon grass. She chatted incessantly about Chiapas, telling stories of her childhood home, the cocky rooster backyard, the chicken scratched patch. Everyone became an accomplice to Maria's home language. Amor, como se dice? How you say? She would sidle up to us shyly, grabbing at her Zeldal twins, Chico and Enos, scampering in and out of the open kitchen door, hair like the glossy rumps of Corvid's seedless dry bears. In the hollowed pumpkin flicker gaze of that first Halloween night, they weave their way between the rest of us baking skull-shaped biscochitos with trick-or-treaters, punching them out in pairs, icing those mocking eye sockets, those grin and buried teeth, showering them with sugar like a blessing. Espera yours, she begged. But the dusty diction of Inglés had no hope for the young. They resisted like revolutionaries, Spanish like a seabird, darting, thieving, Glimmers of foreign fish in their white mouth. Mm. I wanted to read a small excerpt from the long poem at the end of the collection, Aubrey's of Minor God. Um, so it follows this fictional story of a, a family of refugees who have fled from a, a conflict in the Middle East and are trying to settle down in the West. And it's a father and his five young children. So I'm just going to read a little bit from about five stanzas in. Go now. Get a house in the suburbs. White fence, white neighbors. Watch them glare at you from behind their gauzy, diaphanous drapes while you wheel out the garbage bin. Turn up their noses as if you embody the stench that you simply carry. Get your kids ready for school, gobbling down their generic milk flake breakfast, gathering up your collective courage, waiting for the traffic lights to turn. Green says go. You're teaching them to chant, red says stop, yellow get ready, green says go. But color means other to you. Means green card, blacklist, pentahued, pentagon terror levels. That's what's going through your head later as you help them with homework, to get better grades. 
Try to grow them up well because you need to teach them to be good citizens. They are only children, so it's futile. They simply don't get it. But they are not citizens, not permanent, not resident, not anything. Yet giving up when you've got this far is not an option. Even on the days when grief drags you under like a body, sunk and heavy. Not a vibrant one. Not a gentle, animate thing. Moving, spirited beside your own. Like a river, like grace. Like your wife's face the last time you saw her. Alive, radiant. The glow of youth like rosehip, like pomegranate like sumac scattered freckles glistening on her cheeks, in her heart haunting eyes, what you wouldn't give now, for the glittering throat of her laughter, rolling out your rug, genuflecting in the direction of your holy stone, calling out to the glory of your God, when all you have is her name in your mouth, perfect prayer bead on your tongue. thinking about the topic of today's discussion and being here at the Centre for Resistance Studies, I thought about how sometimes, and I think for a lot of us, the earliest form of resistance that we encounter is actually internal resistance, resistance to what's happening within yourself and sort of the conflicted, divided nature of being alive in the world at whatever time you are. Um, so I wanted to read this poem, which is called Loss, L-O-E-S-S, which is a form of silt. And it's also about losing. When I was still little, I had a teacher, a monk. Sometimes I'd really want something, some body, Stay. I'd shy up to him, ask what to do with this desire. He would take my hands in his, cut them as a single heart, say, What are you trying to hold on to? Loosen your grip, see the whole sky resting in your palms. Now, sometimes still, I walk outside, palms spread, eagle to sky and watch, and everything that I have loved falls through my fingers like silt. reading um, a poem that is sort of got a graphical representation so it's written in two parts. It's a found poem um, which is taken from existing kind of documents 
Um, so the left side of the poem is taken from a, an article in the newspaper which was published a few years ago, which was called What are the chances of migrants making it through Irish port in a truck? Um, we're just talking about a group of migrants who have um, smuggled over in a freight, uh, sorry, a ferry um, from France. And the right side of the poem um, draws on a history of British birds. It was a, a book written in 1870. Um, and it talks about birds who are migrating from um, east to west. And I was struck really by the similarity in the language used in describing these two very different sorts of migrations. Um, so I tried to put them together in the same poems, so I'm going to read it and hopefully it will work without seeing it on the page. It starts with an epigraph from the the Book of the History of British Birds, which says that a European birds migrate across the seas or to Asia was understood in the Middle Ages, but subsequently forgotten. And the chances of migrants making it through Irish port in a truck. With 1.3 million freight vehicles and trailers passing through the three main Irish ports annually, the Garda and the Revenue's Custom Service face a mammoth task in detecting migrants or contraband, such as drugs and counterfeit cigarettes being smuggled into the Republic. These birds go in large flocks, frequently of several hundreds, and commonly in parties of not less than 30 or 40 together. They are scarcely so suspicious as on the ground, where you can hardly approach them within a few hundred yards. And if the majority fly off first, a few generally wait a little longer. Senior Garda officers in particular are very concerned that cases like the discovery of 16 Middle Eastern migrants, all male and two of them juveniles, are about to become more frequent when Britain becomes harder to enter. The Reverend Gilbert White, in his Natural History of Selborne, remarked the large flocks to be met with in hard weather being almost exclusively composed of females. Linnaeus, in his fauna of Sweden, records his observation of the like circumstance there and says that the females migrate from their country in the winter, but the males do not. The concern is that some will come here and apply for international protection with the ultimate aim of catching a ferry to Britain and disappearing there, unnoticed and undocumented. Occasionally, however, two or three seem to withdraw from the main body. They thought maybe to remain to breed, but for the most part, from some cause or other, it is doomed to be an abortive one. Gardy believe Britain is a much more popular destination for illegal migrants, and the numbers entering Ireland in containers are relatively small, but they have no way to be sure. In Ireland, the occasional visitor has been noticed near Belfast, Ballymena, Lockmast, Armagh, Rockland, Mertoum, Cork, Tandaragi, Antrim, Ranala, Dublin, and in the counties of Wicklow, Cavan, Wexford, and Derry. While trucks carrying freight are sealed when the containers are loaded, this has not stopped migrants or the gangs that smuggle and traffic them bypassing the seals which snap if the truck's doors are opened. These birds, as mentioned above, would seem to migrate in the northeasterly direction, 
and accordingly leave Ireland sooner than Scotland on their return to their native lands, and appear to choose moonlight nights for their flight. In some cases, holes are cut in the roofs of refrigerated containers, or curtain-sided traders are slashed with knives, allowing people to climb them. They are said to be not at all shy in their native countries, but in fact, all birds' natures are then temporarily altered more or less. They are capable of being kept in confinement. In the case of the 16 males detected in the truck's trailer on the Stena sailing from Cherbourg to Rosslare on Thursday morning, one of the ferry company's employees heard the men inside the container and raised the alarm. These birds are very vociferous, even in the depth of winter, so that the dejected face of nature is enlivened by their ceaseless needs. And likewise, during their migrations, a constant strain of conversation is kept up, which, as harbinging the return of spring, is a welcome sound even to those who are doomed to suffer from their ravages. But what would have happened had the men gone undetected on board and still been in the container as it was driven off the ferry? At this stage of the narrative, I have arrived at that portion of my, alas, too brief allotted space, which is assigned to the subject of migration.